Welcome back to Warped and Wicked. We are so happy that you're here and we have felt all the love from all of you since we announced we were doing this podcast. It's been tremendous and it's really been a dream come true. Yeah, we have been so excited with all the outpouring of love from just our friends and our new listeners. It has been like really crazy. Yeah. We're so excited and very thankful. Yes. We forgot to mention in our last episode how long we've been friends because it's been forever. A long, yeah. long time. Forever. Uh, for e- decades. <laughs> decades. It's been decades. Uh, me and Crystal have been friends since first grade. Yeah. And we're in our mid-30s. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, we always so say So calculate that, that. Yeah. You do the math. <laughs> and then Jenny, we met in... Well, I met you in fifth grade. Mm-hmm. I yep. don't know if fourth grade? third or fourth third, grade yeah i came over in third grade but yeah. it was like halfway through the year yeah so yeah so. we've been friends for a really long a really like, long pretty much time. our whole lives yeah <laughs> yes. jenny over here has been obsessed with true crime for since she was born i believe oh my god um i i have to mention <laughs> this story when i had a sleepover at jenny's house and uh her dad took us to bob evans for breakfast we're sitting there keep in mind i'm 12 and <laughs> She starts talking about, I believe it was Ted Bundy and someone being decapitated. And my ass sitting over there, I don't even know what that means. But she was so happy about but it. it. She was so I mean, so it, it, it sounds provocative. It was very sexy and spooky. <laughs> and I was just like, I had to go home and ask what that meant. Yeah, my Uncle Dave told me stories about serial killers from like the time I was like eight or nine, I think. Mm-hmm. He, It was like... PG rated though, like he didn't go into just, the, just bedtime the stories, gory, gory details bedtime of it. Bedtime stories, you know, like classics. Yeah, I feel like you're more into like the legends and yeah, I, I aliens like aliens and aliens, vampires, werewolves. I like the science fiction. I just yeah. like to be scared. I just like to be scared. <laughs> so this is perfect for me. You wait till Jennifer does the Skinwalker episode because she was just telling me some things and oh. it scared the crap oh. out of me. Oh my god! In the middle of the day. Okay. Yeah, I can't wait. That's gonna be fun. So stay tuned yes. for that. Yes, but until then, let's get on with the story of the Salem Witch Trials Part Two. All right. So on our last episode. We ended the initial accusation of the Salem witch hysteria. An enslaved woman named Tituba was accused by Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, who were their daughter and niece of the Reverend Samuel Paris. But before we get into further accusations, we wanted to introduce to you another key player in this whole ordeal. One of the top hypocrites of this century, (laughs) Cotton Mather. Now, Cotton Mather was a well-known author, and he was a preacher in Massachusetts. And we will mention his stupid-ass antics quite a few times in this episode and in the next one. But for now, it's important to know that Cotton published a book three years prior to the accusations of 1692, titled Memorable Providences Relating to Witchcraft and Possessions. Hmm. This book, so it detailed the afflictions of the children of a Boston family, the Goodwins. Cotton was called to the Goodwin home to pray over the children. It was ultimately believed that one of the housekeepers for the Goodwins, uh, who was an Irish Catholic woman named Goody Ann Glover, was afflicting the children. Remember, Puritans did not like Catholics. Wait, so Puritans didn't like Puritans. (laughs) Did I get that right? Yes. Once again, isn't it ironic? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so that's true. So Goody Glover was accused and faced trial. 
Cotton Mather was one of her main accusers. While Goody Glover knew English, she spoke Gaelic during her trial. At first, it was believed she was speaking a language of the devil. Of course. The devil. Of course. <laughs> like, why would you ever speak anything but this English? <laughs> so it had been theorized that she lost the ability to speak English by the time of her trial. And as I could imagine, going through the stress of being accused of witchcraft with, you know, certain death probably mm-hmm. does make you revert back to your native language to express themselves. An interpreter had to be found for the trials to proceed. Many of the accusations used spectral evidence, which is another term for bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Spectral evidence was a testimony in which a witness would claim that the accused witch had appeared to them and did harm to them in a dream or a vision. Mm. The look on your face right now, Crystal, is priceless. (laughs) I'm just wondering why they didn't try the cake thing. Right. Yeah. So let's bring let's bring her back her speech. We need a witch her... cake. Someone pee in this. Where's a dog? Where's, Where's a, a dog? dog? Where's the dog? <laughs> I'm just baffled. No matter how many times I hear this bullshit, did they hear themselves talking as they were spewing all of these lies? I, you I don't know, think so. I, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, at what point you're like, hey, we need to really like calm down. We're being, we to, we're being really overdramatic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, sorry. At her trial, it was demanded that Goody Glover say the Lord's Prayer. She recited it in Irish and broken Latin, but was unable to say it in English. And this is important to remember. There was a belief that the inability to recite the Lord's Prayer was a mark of a witch. So ultimately, Goody Glover was hanged on November 16th, 1688, amid mocking shouts from the crowd. I mean, this shit is infuriating enough. You really got to know the details of how things really went down to understand the nature, the true nature of these freaking crazy ass people. Absolutely callous. It's disgusting. Anyways... Two things that undoubtedly have had an effect on the witch trials. One, Cotton Mather had previously been involved with witchcraft accusations prior to Salem. Two, the book he wrote, The Memorable Providences Relating to Witchcraft and Possessions. So snappy. So, it was like, so snappy. That was a fucking mouthful. <laughs> was most likely well known by all members of Salem Village, including the teenage girls. Mm. So... Therefore, the symptoms experienced by the Goodwin children, including the hysterical fits and being tortured by specters, would have been known. This book also discussed the 1679 witch hunt in Mora, Sweden. Numerous children in Mora accused 60 people of witchcraft, 23 of them being burned at the stake. Three things made the witch hunt unusual. Widespread participation of children, the quick spread of the charges, and the use of spectral evidence. Sounds awfully familiar, huh? (laughs) Yeah. So let's get back to the accusations. After Betty Paris and Abigail Williams accused Tichuba of tormenting them, the accusations of bewitchment began spreading through Salem. And Samuel Paris, along with several other residents, started thinking, hey, there's got to be more than just one witch in this town, because of course. Oh, well, yeah, there's probably six or seven. <laughs> so Samuel Paris and his wife asked Betty and Abigail, who we are just going to call the Paris girls from here on out, just to make it easier on everybody. Yeah. 
to start naming more witches in Salem. And while the Paris girls were trying to decide whose lives they were going to ruin, Paris and his wife discussed the names of people around town who might be making deals with the devil. Ooh. And this conversation occurred within hearing distance of the girls. Oh, so the girls needed people to name? Okay. Yeah. Okay. The Paris girls then named Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne as two of their tormentors. So Sarah Good was a poor woman who would often go door to door begging for handouts while her husband worked as a day laborer. She was also pregnant. She was known to be sharp-tongued, even with people who helped her. And Sarah Osborne was a widow who was so sick that she was bedridden. It's also said that she scandalized the community by purchasing the contract of an indentured servant, Alexander Osborne, and marrying him. I can think of so many more things that are actually scandalous, but (laughs) alrighty. (laughs) We're going to see how the first few rounds of people that have accusations thrown at them were the typical type of people to be accused of witchcraft, like women of lower social rank, widows, people who don't hesitate to give you their opinions, people outside of society. But it will eventually take a turn as they continue with all this bullshit. Yeah. Well, don't forget, in case you're bedridden and you can't leave your house. You might be a witch. Probably a witch. Yeah. (laughs) The same day that the witch cake was baked at the Paris household, which I'm just still having nightmares about (laughs) those. We just talked about those. (laughs) Two other girls were suffering from afflictions. These girls were 12-year-old Anne Putnam Jr. and 17-year-old Elizabeth Hubbard. Anne was the daughter of Thomas Putnam and Anne Putnam Sr., who were friends with Samuel Paris. Elizabeth Hubbard was working as a maid for her aunt, Rachel Griggs, and guess who Rachel was married to? Dr. William Griggs, the same doctor that determined the Paris girls were, quote-unquote, under an evil hand. Oh, my God. So Dr. Griggs could have been telling his wife about the bewitchment of the Paris girls and Elizabeth Hubbard probably overheard it. Exactly. And I'm sure Samuel Paris told the Putnams about his daughter's and niece's afflictions. By this point, the Paris girls were screaming, throwing things, uttering strange sounds, crawling under furniture, and contorting themselves into weird positions. It's like they were a cross between toddlers and Stuart off of Mad TV. <laughs> Look what I can do. Look what I can do. <laughs> so Anne Putnam Jr. said the specter of Sarah Good pinched her and tried to get her to sign the devil's book. The devil has a book? Everybody's got a goddamn book. <laughs> <laughs> well, signing the devil's book would establish a formal covenant with the devil. And Elizabeth said she was being stalked by a wolf sent by Sarah Good. She also said she was being tormented by Sarah Osborne. So yeah, if Sarah Good signed a deal with the devil, she'd totally be sending wolves to stalk one girl and pinch another, rather than like taking care of her pregnant self. Exactly. Yeah. She ain't got time for that. That Makes Makes total sense. Makes sense. (laughs) And since they felt they had to take all of these accusations as fact, legal proceedings against Tituba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne started on February 29th. Four men, including Ann Putnam Jr.'s father and uncle, swore out legal complaints to local magistrates Jonathan Corwin and John Haythorne. What is a magistrate? <laughs> magistrate. What is a magistrate? <laughs> a magistrate is a civil officer or lay judge who administers the law, but they typically conduct a court that deals with minor offenses 
and holds preliminary hearings for more serious ones. Mm. Corwin and Haythorn were a couple of Salem's wealthy merchants and politicians, but they lacked formal legal training. But, like, who needs legal training to work in the legal system? Yeah, just you know, seems completely me, unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. What are your qualifications? Trust, Trust me, bro. Me, bro. <laughs> That's like the slogan of this whole yeah, Salem Witch series. Trail. Trust me, bro. Trust me, bro. These two issued warrants for the three accused women, and they were brought to Ingersoll's Tavern the next day. Because that's where all the court proceedings should take place. At the bar! (laughs) (laughs) We're we're going to court, I guess. We're going to have a drink and decide whether you're going to freaking kill me or not. Could you just imagine, like, being at the bar, just like... Overhearing this? Yeah. I would be sitting there like... Are you freaking serious? <laughs> Let me guess. A 12-year-old told you this. <laughs> Got it. I really have no idea why this occurred. Because the tavern was super close to the parsonage and the town meeting house. <laughs> Maybe Corwin and Haythorn wanted to kill two birds with one stone. I don't know. <laughs> That's fair. This is <laughs> this is interrupting our drinking time. <laughs> so we might We're well. just going to have court at the bar. We're so. supposed to play poker tonight, guys. Like, my dude. <laughs> My dude, my dude, my gooch, my gooch. (laughs) But because so many people were trying to crowd into the tavern, probably to get a drink and a show, they had to move the proceedings to the meeting house. Oh, dang it. I hope somebody got to have a few drinks before they had to move. (laughs) It was probably John Haythorn and John Corwin. So John Haythorn led the interrogations, which doesn't sound like the job of a judge. Uh, Judges are supposed to be impartial and, you know, Use reason. Hmm. Anyways. They didn't have a lot of that then. Haythorn asked questions like, What evil spirit have you familiarity with? Have you made no contact with the devil? Why do you hurt these children? And Sarah Good denied the accusations. And while all this is going on, all four girls are crying out in torment. They claim Good Spirit lunged out of her body at them. More denials led to more crying out, of course. Finally, Sarah Good blamed Sarah Osborne for the girl's afflictions. And Sarah Osborne stated that she was more likely to be bewitched than she was a witch. I mean, for as sick as she was, yeah, it's more believable if someone had said she was bewitched. She was bedridden. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Both Sarahs were held for trial. That quick, huh? On such little evidence. (laughs) Yep. You keep acting like things need to make sense in legal proceedings, but they don't. (laughs) They don't. (laughs) Salem. Then it was Tichiba's turn to testify. Tichiba initially denied the accusations, but mm-hmm. after Haythorn's constant interrogation, she finally admitted to being a witch. Tichiba said that Satan had revealed himself to her and bid her to serve him. Tichiba said her, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and three other witches from Boston were responsible for the girl's torments. She also said that Good's familiar was a yellow bird that sucked between her fingers. Okay, what is a familiar and what the hell is going on? <laughs> that's a fucking weird one. That sucked between your fingers. I, I don't really understand that, but that's okay. <laughs> um, a familiar is a supernatural spirit. An imp Not sent a by... Pimp? A pimp. A pimp without the pimp. It's a pimp from Satan. <laughs> oh my god. He's seen with a cane. It's <laughs> <laughs> an imp sent by Satan <laughs> to aid a witch and their devious works. Um... <laughs> This is why in popular culture, witches have black cats. If you even want to, like, think about, like, Harry Potter. Black cats. You know, Harry's got Hedgewig the owl. Hermione's got her cat. Ron has the rat, which isn't really as familiar because it's another character in the movie. Anyways, 
So, so they got black cats and they're with them all the time. Anyways, the familiar would need nourishment. So they suck blood from their witch to get this. And this was either done through a cut, like on the hand, or through a teat. A teat. A teat. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I didn't know if I was like, oh, that's misspelled. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have teats marked. Can you suck me? Oh, my God. <laughs> Fucking meet the fucker. <laughs> Oh, I was like, what the fuck? I'm glad you said that. He's talking about milk. Can you milk me and not suck? <laughs> I couldn't remember what he said. <laughs> it just sounded good at the time. Oh, God. It's not. I'm so sorry. That's so funny. <laughs> Literally, my daughter asked uh, if my dog had a belly button. I said, yeah. She's like, where is it? I'm like, on her stomach. She's like, wow, she's got a lot of belly buttons. I'm like, that is not, that is not it. Oh. Anyways. So, so yes, yes. A third nipple. A third nipple. <laughs> and it was, what? A third nipple? Okay. So it was believed that the witches could assume the shapes of animals. So if an animal was behaving weirdly, that might indicate the presence of a witch. Witch! And your teeth. So Tichuba said the devil threatened to kill the children and also sent an assortment of animals to encourage her to hurt the girls. Tichuba said she finally gave in and tormented the four girls, but she did say she was sorry for it. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> of course, when Tichuba began testifying, the girls were very loud and annoying, but shut the fuck up after she confessed. Mm. Tichuba then went on into like her own sort of fit, claiming that the two Sarahs were tormenting her. And then she stated that she had signed the devil's book along with Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. There were also signatures from six other witches in the Devil's Book. And it is important to note that Tichuba later told a writer named Robert Califf that Samuel Paris had beaten a quote-unquote confession out of her, and then he coached her on what to say during her testimony. So it's not like Tichuba was just saying all this shit on a whim. She was saying it because piece of shit fucking minister who didn't want to lose his little power that he had left in the town where nearly everyone hated him, beat her into confessing that several other people were witches. That's fair. Makes total sense. Yeah. So all three alleged witches were placed in jail. Most of the afflicted girls improved for a bit of time. However, Anne Putnam Jr. was tormented by two more specters. One of these specters was Sarah Good's daughter, Dorothy. Anne said Dorothy's specter had hit Pinched, choked her, and tried to get her to sign the devil's book. Oh, and I'll go ahead and mention Dorothy was four years old. Four years old! Four years old! Yep, that's typical. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so Ann Putnam Jr. was so cruel. And you will see that she's just going to keep increasing her insane bullshit. It's like, if this was the movie Mean Girls, (laughs) Ann Putnam Jr. would be Regina George. How many of you have ever felt personally victimized by <laughs> Ann Putnam Jr.? And the entire town of Salem raises their hands. You don't yes. even go here. She doesn't even go here. Do you even go here? No. Just have a lot of feelings. So, I'm sorry. Ann's second new tormentor was Martha Corey. Martha was the wife of a farmer, Giles Corey. She had recently joined Reverend Paris's church. She was a pious member of Salem Village, despite having a child out of wedlock two decades prior. Again, there's just so much scandal in Salem. Salem. It's a scandalous town. 
Martha was also an outspoken critic of the Salem witch trials and said many times that the girls accusing the townspeople were liars. And that was probably the quickest way she got a target on her back. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They didn't like that. During her later examination, she said, we must not believe all that these distracted children say. And her husband Giles actually testified against her in March saying she may have bewitched him and his farm animals. So much for these wedding vows. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Bewitched his farm animals. Okay. Well, Martha's specter really got around because her specter also began afflicting Mary Warren, who was a 20-year-old servant of John and Elizabeth Proctor. Elizabeth was John's third wife. His first and second wives had died. Ooh, colonial New England, am I right? I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's a witch. He got married more than twice. So uh, Anne's next accusation would be directed towards Rebecca Nurse. Anne's just checking off that list of nine witches that Tichaba mentioned of. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So Rebecca was an elderly church member with an unblemished reputation. She was a popular woman in town, but you know who she did have a long-standing feud with the Putnam family. And I am just in absolute shock. I'm right going to have to lay down. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so their feud was over border boundaries of their adjoining properties. Rebecca also didn't like Samuel Paris. I mean, I don't blame her. Right. Uh, the specters of the accused supposedly haunted the other afflicted girls and even new victims, including adult women and one man. The Paris's other slave, John Indian, said that he had been afflicted. A middle-aged Quaker resident named Bathsheba Pope, Benjamin Franklin's aunt that we talked about in the last episode of who all was related to who. And so she said she was temporarily blinded by Martha Corey's specter. Anne Putnam Sr. added herself to the list of the afflicted as well. Thomas and Anne Putnam Sr.'s teenage maid, Mercy Lewis, suffered extreme fits. Mercy was one of the main war refugees that had seen some crazy shit. Mercy's parents, grandparents, aunts, uncle, and most of her cousins were killed during the frontier wars. So she lost, like, damn near her whole Whole family. family. The accused underwent physical examinations. So the examiner would look for devil's marks, which were believed to be the permanent marking of the devil on a new witch to seal their obedience and service to him. So if an accused witch had, like, a birthmark, a wart, a mole... Or any other blemish, the examiner would claim they found a devil's mark on the accused. These areas were believed to be numb and insensitive to pain. And even if the examiner couldn't find such a mark, they might then do a pricking test. Yeah, there's a lot of pricks in this story. (laughs) (laughs) Since devil's marks were believed to be insensitive to pain and unable to bleed, examiners used specially designed needles to repeatedly stab and prick at the accused person's flesh until they discovered a spot that produced the desired results. The examiner also looked for a witch's teat, which as we discussed... <laughs> teat! Teat, 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 teat! Okay, so, I am trying to be an adult about this, but like... Titties! And it's on there titty. again. I see it again. <laughs> I think this might be one of the last times we say it, but I can't remember. <laughs> no, we got one more. Which, as we discussed earlier, was believed to feed their familiar... Any raised bump on any area of the body was considered to be a teat. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> I'm there are also tests performed to determine if the accused were truly witches. One test was a water test. 
I'm cringing already. Mm. During this test, the accused witch would be taken to the closest body of water, stripped down to their underwear, bound, and tossed in to see if the accused would sink or float. An innocent person would sink, and a witch would float to the surface. Seems kind of counterintuitive here. Makes sense. The rationale behind this was that witches were believed to have spurned the sacrament of baptism and water would reject their body. So the accused witch usually had a rope tied around their waist so that they could be pulled from the water if they sank. But accidental drowning deaths could occur. I would have, <laughs> oh my God. I don't know if any of those things were accidental. I, right. I don't think so. They the, the, you did that on purpose. You knew I couldn't <laughs> swim and you did that on purpose. I'm not going to lie. I'd probably be fucked. They're like, well, there we go. I mean, they, they didn't want you to be innocent. They wanted everybody to be guilty. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. And I forgot to mention, guys, I'm a witch. Because I have a birthmark in a mole. I do, too. I have a skin tag <laughs> under my armpit. <laughs> that's your <laughs> my that's teeth. That's my teeth. It's where I feed my familiar. <laughs> oh, my God. <sighs> Another test was a touch test. A touch test is pretty simple. So simple that it doesn't make sense. Which, why would it? But it was said to believe... Guys, they came up with this <laughs> in a bar. You know, we didn't have... We were drunk. We didn't have a lot of time. Accusations were flying off the table. Okay, guys, we need some tests. We have we got... Some tests. What can we do? Make it scientific. What can we do? For how, about, how about a touch test? How about we just touch them? Well, how about we throw them in the pond over there? <laughs> Let's look for a third titty. <laughs> oh, my... You see that weird thing on her face? (laughs) That looks like a teat. I think she could feed someone through that. I'm done. I'm going to feed my bird with that. (laughs) So, all right. So, the touch test. Simple test. So simple. Doesn't make sense. But it was said that if a bewitched person touched the witch who was tormenting them, that the person's suffering would immediately end. Now, some courts required the bewitched person to be blindfolded and then touch different people to see if their affliction would end for others. Therefore, if they touch someone other than the accused witch and their torment ended, that meant the accuser was a dirty, dirty liar. (laughs) I mean, it was still a stupid thing, but less stupid than the way they handled it in Salem. So on March 21st, magistrates Haythorne and Corwin examined Martha Corey. They also believed they had enough evidence, which I'm sure it was solid evidence, to hold Martha in jail until her trial. And then at another session on March 23rd, they also jailed Rebecca Nurse and and four-year-old Dorothy Good. Mary Warren, the servant of John and Elizabeth Proctor, quickly went from afflicted to seemingly recovered. It seems that John Proctor had beaten Mary until the fits stopped. That will do it. However, once she had recovered, the accusations were then thrown at her by the afflicted. Mary spent three weeks in jail... And during that time, she must have decided that being afflicted was much better than being in jail. (laughs) Therefore, Mary's fits begin again. And, well, 
John and Elizabeth Proctor were accused of witchcraft. On April 11th, Elizabeth Proctor and Sarah Cloyce, who was one sister of Rebecca Nurse, look, this is about the time we just need to start pinning pictures to a board and connecting them with string like that Charlie Day meme. <laughs> yeah, like the what the cops do. And the, yeah, and the he's looking tacks. all fucking crazy. <laughs> Anyways. On April 11th, Elizabeth Proctor and Sarah Cloyce appeared in front of a special session with Deputy Governor Thomas Danforth. John Haythorne, and Jonathan Corwin. After testimony was given, Elizabeth Proctor and Sarah Cloyce were held for trial. John Proctor also was arrested because he was accused during this session. And while Danforth could have brought an end to all of this, he could have been like, this shit is crazy. Let's stop it We right need now. to stop right now. <laughs> he basically gave the colonial government's approval of the process, which then accelerated the accusations. So it's like, match... To gunpowder. You yeah. know what I mean? He's just like, yep, there we go. Danforth returned home and told his colleagues that Salem was infested with witches, which then spread the witch hysteria throughout the whole colony. Yeah, the next for the examinations of Bridget Bishop, Giles Corey, Abigail Hobbs, and Mary Warren. Giles Corey refused to provide any further information and refused to enter a plea. All while Abigail Hobbs accused him of being a wizard. Well, that sounds kind a, of fun. Well, that's better than like being a, a wizard witch. cap. Yeah. <laughs> the, the moon and the stars yes. and the blue. With the little <laughs> thing, the coat with the big sleeves. You know, Bridget Bishop was a widow who had uh, frequent run ins with the law, which included being convicted of domestic violence, and one neighbor accused her of stealing a spoon. A spoon? Not the spoon! That's the the worst thing! You savage! (laughs) She had also been previously accused of witchcraft in 1679, but she was acquitted due to lack of evidence. Yeah. Much like how everyone else should have been acquitted during this. Mary Warren confessed that she had signed the devil's book. Mary accused more people of witchcraft and was later released from jail in June. Which, so like, can you just imagine somebody, the devil... Right now, I'm thinking of a movie, Can't Hardly Wait, with Melissa Joan Hart trying to get everybody to sign her yearbook. <laughs> yeah. She's like, sign, it's all about the memories. Like, <laughs> could you just imagine the devil running around like, sign my book. <laughs> sign my book. Have a great summer. Yeah. <laughs> I was the first to sign. Mm-hmm. 14-year-old Abigail Hobbs confessed as well. She was one of the main refugees that said that she'd met the devil four years earlier in <laughs> Casco Bay. Shortly before King William's War broke out, which led Abigail to Salem. This confession provided the foundation to arrest Reverend George Burroughs, who was living in Casco Bay. Two days later, Ann Putnam Jr. just so happened to see his specter and the specter of Abigail Hobbs. Ann claimed that Burroughs' specter said he killed his first two wives and the wife and child of former Salem minister Deodat Lawson. And on May 4th, Burroughs was arrested in Wells, Maine. Burrow would later be called the King of Hell, I guess because they thought that he was a reverend and that he could take down the church from inside if he were truly a witch. Mm. Yeah. Like, I don't think the devil's going to be, like, Does he have a book? Does he have a book? <laughs> hmm? You got a book? Nope. Nope. Not the king. At this point in the story, we should probably discuss just how gross the prisons in colonial Massachusetts were. The prisons were cold, dark, and damp. A storm of witchcrafts notes that the stench of unwashed bodies, chamber pots, rotting food, vomit, and dead vermin would have made conditions almost unimaginable. 
Inmates were infested with fleas as well as lice that often carried deadly jail fever or typhus. And since witches were considered dangerous, you know, with all those abilities to pinch children and send wolves to stalk people, they were chained in iron in the dungeons of these prisons. So iron was believed to disrupt magic so that would render a witch without powers. And like, just to reiterate, like there is a four-year-old in one of these prisons (laughs) chained in iron. And I think it was in the episode that Morbid did over the Salem Witch Trials, they said that, that Dorothy Good was in there for like nine months. Oh my gosh. A four-year-old was in jail for nine months, like strapped down, like chained down. And they said that she was like never normal after that. Like they had to pay somebody to take care of her for the rest of her life. Oh my God. Yeah. That is so sick. Yeah. That's sick. So it's no surprise that Sarah Osborne, the accused witch, who was snatched out of her sick bed a couple months earlier. Because some of their lying ass teenage girls. Mm -hmm. She died in prison on May 10th. And her family still had to pay her jail fees. Get out of here. The Salem jail fees were expensive, and even the families of the people hanged had to pay them. Oh my gosh, that just doesn't even seem right. Insult to injury, guys. It's not right, but okay. So, and it also needs to be stated that two situations were causing even more of an uptick in the accusations. One was when people would confess to witchcraft, they had to implicate even more people that were serving Satan. The second was that someone had to continue causing the afflictions if the witches were being shackled in iron because if their magic was useless, then how were the girls still being bewitched? Another event that occurred in May was that the constable named John Willard quit his job because he began to doubt the witches' accusations were real. Someone with some sense. Oh my God, I like him. I like him. When the accusations started in February, Willard brought the accused before the court. However, by the time May rolled around, he refused to make any further arrests. Apparently, he didn't get the memo that Ann Putnam Jr. was a scheming bitch. She quickly accused him of witchcraft. Funny how that happens. Mm -hmm. And on May 14th, finally, new-ish Governor William Phipps arrived in Boston. Can't you just see him nearly skipping singing... Making my way downtown, <laughs> walking fast, and faces pass, and I'm homebound. <laughs> By the time he got his shit together, 40 people had already been accused of witchcraft, and eight more complaints were to be made that same day. Remember, the colony is in the middle of switching to a new charter. The colony's elected legislature, the general court, could establish a court, but it wasn't supposed to meet until June 8th. But that was like a whole month away. So we got to get this going. And there was clearly a crisis going on that was threatening the stability of yet another new government. So on May 27th, the court of Oyer and Termine, which means to hear and determine, was established. It was basically like an emergency court. And these courts had been set up other times in England and in New England. And William Phipps told England he established a court of Oyer and Termine. However, he failed to mention the witchcraft crisis to his superiors. Because remember, by this point, England had pretty much done away with going crazy over witches. So they probably wouldn't have allowed this. 
but I guess we'll never know that for certain. The court of Oyer and Termine only had jurisdiction over three counties, including Essex County, which is where Salem was at. Was this in a bar as well? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We can only hold these in bars. We we can't can't do it anywhere else. else. There's no room. Build a new bar if you fucking have to. (laughs) The court of Oyer and Termine was led by Deputy Governor William Stoughton, who was a real fucking prick, and also included Bartholomew Gedney, John Richards, Nathaniel Saltonstall, Wait Winthrop, Samuel Seawall, John Haythorne, Jonathan Corwin, and Peter Sargent. And there will be a, a test at the end yeah. of this episode. His name was Wait. <laughs> like, Wait. <laughs> I didn't do it. None of these men had legal training, and they were all wealthy Puritan merchants and or members of the governor's council. Thomas Newton was the prosecuting attorney. So who was the defense attorney? Oh, they didn't have one. Okay, so they just didn't have one. Oh my god. <laughs> you keep wanting this to make sense, but it's make not it going sense, to. Jenny. Make, make it, it make sense. sense. <laughs> I could be on a t-shirt too. <laughs> or like a sticker, the Salem Witch Trials. Make, make it, it make sense. sense. Massachusetts didn't allow lawyers to practice for fees until 1705, and the prosecutor didn't question the accused or the witnesses. That's what the judges did. Ask backwards, I know. George Corwin was assigned high sheriff by William Phipps. He just so happened to be the nephew of Judge Jonathan Corwin and Judge Waite Winthrop. Oh, and he was the son-in-law of another judge, the Judge Bartholomew Gedney. So, mm-hmm. like, nepotism in the highest. Yeah. Stop trying to make sense happen. Because it's never going to happen. George Corwin was also, like, 25 years old, which I know is, like, yeah. old-ish for the the colonial New England, but shit. Sheriff George Corwin's duties were to sign arrest and death warrants, confiscate personal property such as money, goods, housewares, and livestock, and carrying out executions. So he was just like going fucking bonkers. Oh, he true. took all the spoons. He took all the spoons. <laughs> you will not have your tea. <laughs> God damn it. No. Your witchy tea. Your will witchy stop. tea. I'm taking your spoons. But before he could do any of that, he had to find 18 men for a grand jury and 48 men for trial juries. George Corwin would come into play for even shittier deeds, too. Don't worry. We'll bring those up. And you may be wondering, kind of because this shit is hard to keep track of, but if there's no official legal system set in place, what laws would they base these trials on? Well, they based them on England's Witchcraft Act of 1604, which called for the death penalty for anyone convicted of invoking evil spirits or a familiar of the devil. And usually they could only convict someone of witchcraft by either a confession of the accused or by testimony of two witnesses to the same act of witchcraft. They also use supporting evidence, like a devil's mark, familiars, teats, poppets, which were basically like voodoo dolls, spell books, charms, etc., etc. And when they didn't have that, they had to resort to things like the touch test and spectral evidence. So basically the, trust me, bro. Trust me, bro. So ministers warned that Satan was so powerful that he could create specters of unwitting and innocent people. Cotton Mather even said early on in the trials to use caution over the use of spectral evidence when he was asked by Judge John Richards for advice. But then Cotton also said that God would vindicate an innocent person whom Satan tried to falsely represent. But that didn't happen. (laughs) And on May 28th, complaints were made on the behalf of Abigail Williams, Mary Walcott, Mercy Lewis, and Ann Putnam against 11 more people, including 
Martha Carrier and Mary Toothaker, who were sisters. Carrier was the first person in Andover that was accused, and she was the niece of an outspoken critic of the witch trials, Reverend Francis Dane. Dude, at this point, I would be like, bro, shut the fuck up, Mm -hmm. because then we're all going to start getting accused. Exactly. Martha Carrier was accused by her neighbor, Benjamin Abbott, after they had a dispute over land. Imagine that, an argument over land. Unheard of in the same Witch! (laughs) You're a witch! Where's my spoon and my firewood? Abbott then fell ill, but it was colonial New England, so odds were high that anyone was going to fall ill at any point in time. Cotton Mather called Martha a rampant hag and the queen of hell. This was not Martha's first time being accused of witchcraft. People in Andover who blamed the smallpox outbreak from a few years prior on Martha, but her family members accounted for seven out of the 13 people that died. Martha's children would later be coerced to testify against her at her trial. You know how they were made to testify against her? Her sons, Richard and Andrew, who were 18 and 15 years old, were tied neck to heels until blood was ready to come out of their noses. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Under such intense pressure, Martha's own children, including seven-year-old Sarah and 10-year-old Thomas Jr., testified against her and confessed themselves to be witches. Mary Toothaker was the wife of Roger Toothaker, who was also accused of witchcraft. Now, Roger did die in jail awaiting trial, while Mary confessed that she had made her pact with the devil in the hope that it would protect her from Native American attack. She had an extreme fear of attack from them, as her homestead was in the most northern part of town. Mary wound up being released from prison, her life spared from execution. However, in a cruel t- twist of fate, in August 1695, Mary's town, Bilrica, came under Native American attack. Mary was killed by Native Americans, and her daughter, Margaret, was taken captive while at their home. This was just two and a half years after her release from prison. Oh my god, That's her so worst sad. her worst fear came true. Mm. After dealing with like all this all bullshit, like, yeah. and then finally getting to be let go, and then two and a half years it's later, it's just really you're sad that her seven and ten year old, you know, to Martha Carriers, yeah. yeah, and it's just like, I mean, my daughter's nine. Could you imagine, like, I know when I was reading that, I felt so them, awful, you know, and because you know your kid doesn't want to, yeah, yeah. It's so sad. And on June 2nd, 1692, the court of Oyer and Termine began its first session by hearing the case of Bridget Bishop. Bridget was not the first to be accused. However, Crown Attorney Newton put her case first because he believed it presented the strongest evidence for conviction. They wanted to start off with a bang. Bridget was previously charged with witchcraft 13 years before, but she was acquitted for lack of evidence. The afflicted girls described how Bridget Specter had tortured them when they attempted to testify against her at her pretrial hearing. Then neighbors came forward to tell the long history of Bridget's satanic acts. A total of 10 witnesses testified about her strange actions. John Bly and his son were hired by Bridget in 1685 to do some repairs around her home. They said when they took down the cellar wall that they found several poppets made of rags with hogs bristles with headless pins in them with the points outward. The Blys did not produce any actual poppets, though, so we're just going on their word here. Mm -hmm. 
Nine women and one surgeon performed physical examinations on Bridget, and they had found a devil's mark in her, in her private area. And when they went to re-examine Bridget a couple hours later, the devil's mark was gone. I can't imagine having a bunch of random people doing these physical examinations on me. It's yeah. freaking gross. Yeah. They were subject to these examinations like over and over again, day after day. I mean, that's, that's cra- like, that's more witchcrafty, demonic bullshit yeah. than <laughs> being accused of. Right. And on the morning of June 10th, Sheriff Corwin and his men took, which, by the way, Bridget was found guilty. I mean, mm. I know we're shocked Shocking. here. So on the morning of June 10th, Sheriff Corwin and his men took Bridget Bishop from the jail to the outskirts of Salem Town to a place that would later be called Gallows Hill. And contrary to popular belief, the people executed were not hanged from a tree at the top of the hill. It was later determined by historians that no one would want to cart someone up a hill just to hang them. That makes sense. Which is like, you're assholes and you're also lazy. It's like Like, literally the only thing that made sense so far. Like, yeah, that that makes sense. I'm not going up there. I want to kill you, but not that bad. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the condemned were actually hanged at Proctor's Ledge. And there weren't actual gallows. They were hanged from a tree branch, every single one of them except for Giles, which we'll get to his in the next episode, Mm -hmm. what happened to him. Sheriff Corwin would later report that Bridget was, quote, hanged by neck until she was dead, unquote. Victims of the executions in Salem were only given a very short drop, usually off a ladder or cart. So due to this, you know, it wasn't like the rope went taut. Their necks broke and they were done. Their death usually resulted by strangulation, which could take as long as 10 minutes. An observer of these executions would later say that friends and family would try to grab the feet of the condemned in midair and tugged on them in the hopes of making their deaths quicker and to end their suffering. Like, could you just imagine, like, seeing this shit? Yeah. I mean, like... I mean, because you're not getting them down. No. And we've always... We've heard about these, like, our whole lives. There's been movies about it. There's been Mm -hmm. books... You know, it's just, it's like ingrained in our culture, but like to actually think about how people actually went to these to watch. To watch them. And just, it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Like, I can understand like going to, like if somebody got like the death penalty yeah. because they killed your family member. Like, yeah. I totally understand going I see it, for like, that. I don't even know if I'd go to that. I don't know if I could, but like I can yeah. understand how somebody yeah, would, would want, want to, to go. for that closure. But this is just... Fucking disgusting, mm-hmm. in my opinion. I mean, I get them wanting to help them get it over with. Oh, that like, I totally get. I'm I talking don't... about just the people that are just fucking yeah, there the, to see a show. To see, yeah, that's. No, I'd probably die because I would have a shotgun and I would shoot the rope and have this plan or <laughs> practice like Captain Jack Sparrow <laughs> throwing <laughs> and like bow and arrow fire. I mean, something. they tried in Captain Jack Sparrow like three times. <laughs> <laughs> So, Bridget Bishop was the first to be executed during the Salem Witch Trials, but she certainly was not the last. And we will discuss the remaining executions and the fallout from the Salem Witch Trials on next week's episode. Stay tuned, y'all. It's gonna get juicy. And it's gonna be sexy and spooky. Sexy and spooky. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't already, go ahead and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Warped and Wicked Podcast. Also, give us a five-star rating on Spotify. We would really appreciate it. It'll help us spread the word of this new podcast that we just started. And we're so excited. We're so excited. And share the episodes with your friends if you want to. Yes, please. Are your friends into spooky shit? Send it to them. them. Sexiness and teats. And teats. And third titties. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.
All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay spooky.